The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Or fatherless child, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to the children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. And if it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mark, and I was not here last week, uh, but they made a really exciting announcement, for me at least, that starting in June, uh, I get the privilege of being one of your pastors here at Restoration. So, okay. uh, I can't tell you how excited we are. Uh, this has been such a good place for us, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, so in 2019, there's a man named Tom Holland. He wrote a book and it was called How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Tom Holland's a really well-known historian and author. No, not the guy who plays Spider-Man uh, in the Marvel movies. Uh, but Tom Holland, at least in 2019, he wouldn't consider himself to be a Christian. Uh, but over the course of like 600 pages or so, <clears throat> he makes the case that throughout history, Christianity is responsible for shaping most of what we see today as what is good and right and true. That it's the Christian views of justice, caring for the poor and the widow, not taking advantage of those without resources, loving the outsider. He says that our culture, for the most part, sees those as good because they're found in the Bible. And they all came from the Bible. And I was watching an interview that he did over Zoom. This is in the time of COVID. And he summed up his book by saying this. He said, Christianity is the most transformative and revolutionary ideology that has ever existed. And it continues to completely saturate the way people in the West view the world, not just morally or ethically, but in issues as fundamental as sexuality and the nature of progress. That's strong words coming from someone who doesn't consider themselves a Christian. They're just looking very objectively as a historian, seeing what has shaped our culture. And what I want to pitch at you this morning is that regardless of what you believe, whether you're a Christian or not, and if you're here and you don't know what you believe, 
we're so glad you're here. You're welcome here. Ask questions of anything. Uh, but the reason that we can universally agree that justice is good, right? It's good to take care of those without power and without influence. It's wrong to take advantage of people. It's especially wrong to take advantage of people who have been beaten down by life over and over again. We agree on those things, not just because society deems them to be good and true, and not even because Jesus taught about those 2,000 years ago. But in the Exodus, this is 3,000, 3,500 years ago, God was telling his people, this is how you're to be because this is who God is. Right? God redeems his people from this 400-year stint in slavery to Egypt, and then he proceeds to lay out these rules of how they relate to God and how they're to relate to each other. And God reminds them, he says, this is how you were to treat people, remembering that you were once sojourners. You were once people without power, without influence, without anything. We reflect the heart of God when we use our resources to help others, like to look at others with love and compassion as opposed to seeing them as something that we can get out of them. Uh, so with that, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are good and you are just. You love right and you hate wrong. We thank you that there is objective truth and good and evil, and you are always good. And so would you help us to see you this morning? Would you speak through your word? Help us to see who you are and who we can be in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments, which is God's law that he gives to his people, and it can be summed up in the phrase, love God and love your neighbor. Right? All these other laws we see this morning in the book of Exodus, the rest of it, and if you're brave enough to go into the book of Leviticus, which is the one right after, all those laws can be summed up in how to love God and how to love your neighbor. And something I want you to keep in mind is that God gives these laws assuming that his people are going to be living in community with one another. Right? He assumes that the person who follows Jesus, who follows God, cannot be living in isolation and do this. Our passages and the rest of scripture, it assumes that the Christian is gonna be in regular contact with the sojourner and the widow and the orphan. Fair warning, uh, most of us are gonna go home pretty convicted by this passage, myself included. Following God will go hand in hand with living in community. So look back at verse 21. God talks about loving the sojourner. And that word sojourner just refers to someone who's living in a place that they don't really consider home. It's outside their home world. At verse 21, it says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Uh, we know that people who immigrate here from other countries, especially if they don't speak the language well, if they don't have kind of an advanced degree and a job waiting for them uh, in our country, it's very easy for them to be taken advantage of. It's very easy for them to be treated as kind of second class. Uh, they can be underpaid, overlooked, seen as less than than the people who just happen to be born in this country. I'm trying really hard not to bring politics into this, so I'm just going to throw that hand grenade out for you guys to discuss over lunch. <laughs> what do you think about this? Uh, you know, hopefully you've all recovered from Thanksgiving and Christmas talking about these things with your parents and your family. Go for it again. Uh, but it is clear that immigrants and strangers in this land are prime targets for injustice. And in addition to that being against the heart of God, what reason does God give as to why they should treat sojourners well and not oppress them? He says, you guys were just in their shoes, like a few weeks ago, as you were slaves in Egypt. They had just been freed from, sl freed from slavery and oppression. They were living in a land where they had no control, 
They'd been stripped of their dignity. And so how could they possibly think about turning around and being unjust to others? Most cultures in the ancient world, they were a lot like Egypt. Uh, Immigrants had zero rights outside of the country they were born in. They were at the mercy of whatever the land, uh, the people, their land they were living in. But God calls his people to be different, doesn't he? And the Bible uses this term, holy, to say you're going to be set apart. You're going to be holy and different from other people. God's people are to look different, to treat others differently, because God is different. And where we tend to want to take advantage of and extort others, God wants to protect and shield the vulnerable. This is what Leviticus chapter 19 says. Again, that's the next book in the Bible. This is chapter 19, verse 34. It says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Is that not awesome? If you're here this morning, and maybe you've been reading some of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, and you're having a hard time kind of reconciling those two, you think, man, Jesus is so kind and compassionate, and there's some really hard stuff in the Old Testament. I hope passages like this show us that it is the exact same God. Jesus is going to come 1,500 years later and say the exact same things. Love your enemies. Love the widow. Care for the poor. Care for the orphaned. And as we go through these categories, we're just going to spend a few seconds on each one. It's hard to even imagine a world where these are all lived out perfectly, uh, where no one is taken advantage, advantage of, where everyone is kind of giving of themselves to help others. But if you can even begin to wrap your heads around it, would this not be a beautiful community, just a beautiful society to live in? Would this not want to be a place where you want to spend eternity in? And if this is the type of community that just kind of causes us to swoon, we think, man, I wish it could be like this. Does that not seem to insinuate that the God who made us is also like this, that he gave us his own values? Verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God has freed his people from slavery, and he's leading them to a place where they're going to flourish. Uh, King David's going to come later in history, and he's going to promise David, hey, someone from your line is always going to sit on the throne. This kingdom's going to be an eternal kingdom. Uh, Verse 22 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. God comes to this people who have no protectors. They have no inheritance, no source of income or any way to care for themselves, and he feeds them every single day. He gives them water. He leads and guides them through danger. God becomes a husband to the widow and becomes a father to the orphan. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. And God goes on to say that if you take a man's cloak as kind of a deposit for money you've lent him, you better give it back to him before the sun goes down and it gets cold or else he's not going to be able to sleep well. God gives his people exactly what they need in the wilderness every day. He didn't wait until they were doing all the right things to be kind to them. Uh, He didn't wait to see how faithful they were going to be. Spoiler alert, they're not going to be very faithful, but he saves them anyway. He parts the Red Sea, lets them walk through. God gives his people salvation and protection, and it's only after he's freed them from slavery does he say to them, and now here's the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. This is how you live in light of the redemption that I've already given to you. You keep the law not because you're somehow paying God back, but you try to keep the law because you know what God has already given you. 
you know, I hope my kids obey me, not in order to gain my love and gain my trust and gain my favor. I hope they obey me because they already know they have it, no matter what. Uh, at the end of our passage in chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, it says this, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. This is so good, and it tells us just who God is. Uh, so in the creation account in Genesis, it says that God created the universe in six days, and what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And whatever your view of creation is, it's clear that God is setting forth this pattern for people to follow. Take one day each week to rest, right? to not work your normal job, to not be preparing for the rest of the week, to take one day a week to kind of take your hands off the steering wheel and trust God and worship God. And part of that is just we're human beings with limits. Like it's physically unhealthy for us to keep working day after day after day. Uh, but the more spiritual reason is that God commands us to take time each week to stop working, to gather with other believers in worship. So we have to trust him that he's going to continue to take care of us, that we worship him for all of he's done for us. I mean, can you imagine if you were a farmer, and I know I probably just lost most of you talking about being a farmer, <laughs> but if you, your livelihood depends on growing crops, and every six years you had to not plant anything, you just had to trust that something would grow up kind of that had fallen over there the last year, and on top of that, anyone who needed food could just come onto your land and eat. Can you imagine the, how that would grow your faith? And it doesn't qualify what type of person this is who needs to come and have food. It's just someone who's hungry. They can come and eat off your land. This kind of goes against the grain of what we think of in America, right? I mean, I grew up in the South. There's a whole lot of those signs of like, what, trespassers will be shot again or whatever the <laughs> signs are. Uh, you know, they sell those at Walmart. Uh, but again, God is calling us. He's assuming that we're going to be living in community with those around us that we're not just going to be with people who look like us and are in the same kind of socioeconomic level as us. And not only will we be living in community, but men, as men and women who follow God, we will be building into our budgets and our finances the ability to give money away to those in need. Uh, one of my favorite stories from C.S. Lewis, which always makes me feel like I'm not following Jesus very well, uh, and that C.S. Lewis deserves all the praise we tend to give him. Later in his career, he's he started to make a lot more money. Uh, his books were becoming more and more popular. He took a job at Cambridge where he made a lot more money teaching. Uh, he would have been a very wealthy man, but C.S. Lewis was so determined to please God and to live a life of generosity that he gave away about two-thirds of his money. Uh, he didn't accept any royalties from his books. He just kind of told his publishers, hey, here's, he would send them names of widows and orphans and people to send his royalties to. Uh, and someone who was kind of helping him with his affairs, she was like, hey, you've, you've got to save a little bit of money just so you can pay taxes at the end of the year. Uh, and probably the best story about C.S. Lewis and generosity, uh, he and another guy were walking down the street and somebody was asking him for money and C.S. Lewis gives him some. And as they were walking away, his friend's like, why did you do that? Don't you know he's just going to go buy beer with that? And C.S. Lewis looks at him, he goes, well, so was I. <laughs> I love it. Not that C.S. Lewis is the, the final word on anything, but his life was marked by this extreme generosity. Uh, probably his most famous kind of theological book, Mere Christianity. He says this, 
I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because of our giving excludes them. God causes people to rest and to live lives that are marked by generosity and then give out of that, right? Let's back that up. I would encourage all of us to think about our giving. Most of us, our natural state, if we're going to be generous, we're going to make sure we get all we have, all we want, and then kind of give out of whatever is left over. But what if we designed our finances and our budgets and our time to give and spend a certain amount of time each week serving and then ordered our lives out of what is left over? Would your life look any different if we did that? Uh, If our family's on a road trip somewhere and we're looking for a place to eat, it's always Chick-fil-A because it's the only thing that doesn't make me sick (laughs) afterwards. And somehow we we always forget that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, to quote Kanye West before he went crazy for the third time. Uh, <laughs> and I should have asked Nate Mackey this because he works at Chick-fil-A. I would love to know how much money Chick-fil-A loses by not being open on Sundays. It has to be a fortune. And it's not a wise business model. It is so they can give their employees times to rest and time to worship. It's a generous move by Chick-fil-A, even though my family gets a little hangry when we're on the road and it's closed. Uh, for those of you who have some control over your employees' time, are you intentionally being generous, giving them time to rest, letting them take time to themselves to not work and not think about work? All right, so, so far we've heard a lot about what we can do, and some of us like that. We like having a list of things we can check off, even if most of us are feeling slightly guilty right now. We like the idea of having a list to say, I've done this, I can be generous to this person, I can care for this widow, I can give money to this guy who asked for it, If we just do all that, we feel like, oh, we can be good before God. Part of us likes that, but God isn't just after our stuff and our money, is he? God is after our hearts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which is read at a lot of weddings, and I always kind of laugh because it's kind of a terrifying passage in the Bible. Uh, It says this. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And hear this last part. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then it follows with that famous love is patient, love is kind. But what is Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians 13? He's saying you can do all the right things. You can check off all the things on that list. You can give away every bit of your money. But if you don't do it out of love, it's worthless. Right? He says you're gaining nothing. You can be generous on the outside and fearful and frugal on the inside. And if that's you, you're missing the point. I mean, I I want you to think about why we would not live lives of such generosity. I mean, I think we can agree. We all think this would be a beautiful world if this was all lived out but we don't do it, not perfectly at least, right? This would be a great world if everyone was generous, if no one was oppressed, um, if we cared for all the people who needed things. It'd be beautiful, so why don't we do it? We mentioned it earlier, I think it's fear. It's fear that we won't have enough, 
right? It's fear that God won't continue to take care of us, fear that we won't get everything we want, we won't get all those fancy new toys, fear of the unknown. It's fear. And I would argue that all of our sin stems from fear, right? Fear that God's design will fall short of something that we could come up with ourselves, right? Fear that there's something better out there than doing what God commands us to do. Fear that if we don't take care of ourselves, then nobody else will. We're afraid of what people will think, so we lie. We're afraid if people really knew the true us, that they wouldn't want to be with us anymore, and so we kind of stay hidden in the shadows. We only let them know a little bit of us, of who we are. 1 John 4.18 says this, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Do you know the perfect love of Jesus? Uh, Christianity claims that while we were enemies of Jesus, while we were still sinners, we were dead in our sin, we wanted nothing to do with Jesus, he went to the cross for you and me to pay the debt that we all owe God. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the very thing that we should be afraid of, which is death, separation from God. Jesus allowed himself to be treated like an enemy of God so that by faith, you and I can be treated like sons or daughters of him. And so when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, his perfect love casts out the fear of death and the fear of separation from God. So think about this. King Jesus, the creator of the universe who had everything, gave it all away so that you and I could receive everything in him. And we don't deserve a bit of it, do we? So this is an invitation to not be afraid, to follow Jesus and to have him give you this inheritance of eternal life, an eternity spent in a new creation in God's presence where there will not be a whisper of injustice or oppression or sadness or death. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice we can look around and we can look in our own hearts and our own actions and be so saddened by the brokenness in this world. We thank you that you do care about it and you will all one day set all things to right. But for now, before that, would you use us to bring justice to your world? Would you let us not be quiet and still to the injustices we see? Would you give us generous hearts? hearts that delight in giving to others, even if it hurts, even if it means we don't get what we want. We have such an inheritance coming for us. Uh, it makes everything else pale in comparison that we could gain here on earth. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your generosity. Pray all this in his name. Amen. Even if it hurts, even if it means we don't get what we want, we have such an inheritance coming for us. Uh, it makes everything else pale in comparison that we could gain here on earth. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your generosity. Pray all this in his name. Amen.